Most of us in healthcare are warm, caring people who are committed to keeping our patients safe and doing no harm. But there are some among us who do the unthinkable and betray our noble profession. On this podcast, we like to shine a light on the good and the bad. Each week, I'll be joined by another healthcare professional, and together we'll dive into these stories while chatting about nursing and healthcare along the way. I'm Tina, a registered nurse, and this is Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back to our little podcast where we talk a little true crime mixed with a little nursing, healthcare, you know, all the things. This week, as my guest host, I have nurse advocate Maggie Ortiz with me. Welcome, Maggie. Hello, glad to be on. Well, it's really good to have you on here. We're going to be featuring Maggie in the Good Nurse segment of the show. I asked her to come on here and guest host because I wanted to feature her as a good nurse, but I always love it when I can have the actual nurse I'm talking about on the show, and she was nice enough to agree to join me. So thank you, Maggie. Thank you for having me. Are you thinking about going back to school to get a master's degree, maybe a family nurse practitioner degree? Well, it's so important to choose the right program. Samuel Merritt University's MSN FNP program has a 100% employment rate after six months. Unbelievable. And Samuel Merritt University has been kind enough to continue to sponsor our podcast, and they want us to let you know they're continuing to offer a $10,000 scholarship to anyone enrolled in their MSN, DNP, or family nurse practitioner programs. If you're interested in getting more information about these programs, you can visit them at smumsn.com. That's smumsn.com. And of course, we'll put that link on our website if you want to just go to goodnursebadnurse.com. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash goodnurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. I guess we can get right into this story. This is this bad doctor story. It is unbelievable. It's definitely out there. It's very different from the typical stories that we do on here. It's just one of those where you just sit there with your jaw open going, Wait, 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 what? It's It sounds like a movie, some weird movie where you're just going, okay, that's an interesting movie, but that would never happen in real life. And yet. Well, and not like that, or in the 1900s or 18, so interject a different time period as well. You're like, what year is this? Wow. So this is the story of Donald Klein. He is a former medical doctor of OBGYN, obstetrics and gynecology. He operated a fertility clinic in the Indianapolis area. I should say this was sent in by a a listener, and I am so bad about keeping up. You guys know, please forgive me if you're the one that sent this to me. You know I work (laughs) full-time. I am a full-time travel nurse, so it's hard for me sometimes to keep up with uh, all of this stuff. 
but I do read your emails. If I don't respond to you, it is not because I didn't read it. It's just because I'm so busy. I'll read it and then move, you know, kind of like move on. And a lot of times I'll read it and be like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. Thank you. I appreciate it so much. And then I don't get to respond to you. So if you sent the story in, send me a little message, like, hey, Tina, I was the one that sent that to you. And I'll try to give you a shout out the next one. But I do remember somebody sending me this story. So this was a Netflix documentary. So you guys are probably going, oh, I know this story. This is a pretty fresh story after Netflix got a hold of it. But he, fertility doctor, hey, become a beacon of hope for couples struggling to expand their families and had amassed quite a large patient base over the years. He was he operated primarily during the 1970s and 80s. He became really religious during those college days and later became an elder at his church. It's interesting to think about considering what he ends up hmm. doing, but hmm. he was <laughs> Yeah. So he was considered, you know, to be a pillar of his community, often performed poolside baptisms in his home. Idyllic life. He was happily married to children, able to retire comfortably from his practice several years later in 2009, however, but that piece would be short-lived. So <laughs> there was one woman who, by the age of 10, she knew she would, had been donor-conceived, and she wanted to know if she had any half-siblings because she realized that it's possible for the same sperm to be used from, this, from one person on up to a, a maximum of three people. So she, re- she realized like, hey, I could have siblings out there that I don't know about. So she took a DNA test in 2014 and through genetic testing actually located an alarming number of siblings. So she keeps looking and the numbers just keep going up and up and up. And she's just like, what is going on here? Because all of these siblings had one name in common and that was Klein. So apparently Dr. Klein fathered over 94 children during the late 1970s and 80s in Indianapolis by inseminating fertility patients with his sperm rather than using a donor sperm. That's unbelievable, Maggie. I can't. That's crazy. I can't even wrap my mind around that. I mean, that this man really, why? I don't understand. You're not God, seriously. And the more you go on to tell the story, some of it is just, I mean, crazy. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It does seem as though it's a power thing. You know, like, what else could be your motive for doing that other than somehow secretly wanting this power? And I'm sure in the 70s and 80s that he did not expect for all of the advancements in DNA that would come along later and he would be found out because in his mind, I'm sure he's thinking, what's... You know, who cares? What difference does it make? I can do this and I have all of these people out there that are that came from me and I'm leaving this legacy. Nobody has to know. He knows, and that's all that mattered to him, apparently. And he thought he was gonna get away with it. I'm sure once like the DNA started to progress, I bet he had to start getting nervous. Oh, absolutely. Well, and with all this like 
23andMe, send your stuff in. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was probably sweating Mm -hmm. every day because it goes on to affect his relationship with his wife, right? Because at first, I believe he says like, nope, did not do any of this. Then he's like, okay, okay, maybe it was 10. Then he starts to just like, okay, so maybe it was a couple. Because dude, not only that, at that point, after they found out, like, why didn't you just say, "I, I did all of this? I mean, just astounding to me. Astounding. It really is. The original woman that started looking into this and discovered it and her half-siblings demanded litigation against him. And so they started taking their story to local news outlets. It's pretty shocking, the result of that, though, because, Maggie, what happened when they went and said, hey, we want something done about this. Surely this is illegal. So when they initially went to the AG said, no, thank you. And that was Tim, Tim Delaney said, no, we're not interested in this. And Tim Delaney declined to prosecute because he stated, and I quote, there was no law forbidding Klein's conduct. Like who says that as the AG? What Mm -hmm. is happening? I mean, I don't know. It's like, I guess, I mean, I guess if there was no specific law, but could there not have been anything? Surely there was something. So as the AG, when you go to law school, the AG also had a duty to tell that person as well about the Board of Medicine. Remember them? Who this guy holds his livelihood through? And again, a lot of people don't know this. I can just tell you in the state of Texas, not until 1983 was there even a way to investigate a physician. There was no process in place. And Lolly Lockhart in this state, RN PhD, was the one who was asked to come to the Board of Medicine in Texas to help develop that program. And that was in 1983. She's my mentor, and I've heard her tell the story several times. That's the only reason why I know it, right? Because if we get on the phone with someone, they ask, you know, hey, what? tell me your words and It's impressive to hear her speak, but a lot of people don't even know there wasn't even a process in place. But this, the AG at this point knew and had a duty to tell this family, okay, so A, let's start working on a law to create that. Would you like it to call it their, who's this family person that this, their name, and then also to give them direction to the Board of Medicine. Hey, and I'll help draft that paperwork towards, for the Board of Medicine, but the AG being a lawyer has a duty to everyone in that state to then reach out to the board of medicine and say, I don't, I need direction. Right. Just like you and I would like as nurses, right. We would call, if I'm a critical care nurse and I don't do OBGYN, the responsibility for me then, and that's any provider to reach out to that person and say, Hey, you know, or to get that education and training. The same with the AG, right. Had a duty to reach out to the board of medicine and say, Hey, this is the conduct of this physician. I I need guidance, but it's clearly grossly discussed. I don't even know all the words. It's egregious, right? So give me some guidance. And clearly the AG did not do that. The AG went back and good for them for going to social media. I mean, it's disgusting that they even had to go there. Really? Shame on Tim. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) I would hope that if something like this happened to me and I felt victimized the way that they had to have felt victimized, and anyone with common sense would know that this is a form of victimization. It may not have a specific law tied to it, but I also know that attorneys can be very creative when it comes uh, prosecutors, you know, when it comes to trying to prosecute somebody for something, if they want to prosecute someone bad enough, they will dig down and find some law that they can say that you committed, hello, Redonda Vaught and elder abuse. (laughs) I mean, really? Correct. So 
that's what I'm saying. Like, they could have tried to find something. Correct. Another great point, because again, in the Redonda case, I do believe that the district attorney, right, I think that there was a reason, politically driven, money driven, because a lot of things that people don't realize is that there's things that happen behind doors that we just don't know about. Right. That's the reality of life. Right. And who knows this physician or people he was connected with. And don't think that physicians are not connected. Do not even for one second believe that they don't lobby. So they went to the D.A. or to the A.G. and said, hey, you leave this guy alone. Right. Whatever happened behind our good old boys, they were doing whatever, drinking with their people, whatever, like, oh, you know, believe him alone. Right. This person. And again, that's the reality. I that is real. That stuff happens. So. That's probably part of what happened is that they donate to their political party, they vote, they reached out, or they're hooked up with a physician organization that reached out to the AG that lobbies for them and said, hey, look the other way or leave him alone. Don't, you know, but it's unacceptable. It's so unacceptable on so many levels. And I didn't think about it as being as victimization, but that's exactly what it is, sister. I do agree. Yep. That's totally what it is. Well, Netflix eventually saw an opportunity to expand the reach of the half-sibling story. And so they released a documentary in May of 2022 exposing this whole thing. I believe it's called Our Father. It's a riveting documentary. It will, it's, you can't stop watching it. Once you start watching it, it is so fascinating. Netflix, you know, they do an excellent job with documentaries. And I love their documentaries. However... They are now facing legal troubles because after the documentary's release, there were charges filed, not on behalf of the doctor, but on behalf of the half-siblings because two of the donor children, both female, are suing them for revealing the circumstances surrounding their origins to millions of viewers without their permission. So the complaint alleges that neither of the, neither the plaintiff nor their families knew that they were secret children of the of Klein until they took a home DNA test in 2019. After learning, obviously it was shocking this what happened. And so after they learned that, both plaintiffs chose to keep their revelations private, electing not to disclose their true origins. So after you know, that would be so frustrating. It, something like this happens. It's so personal. It's if they decided, you know, it was embarrassing to them for whatever reason, or they just are private people. And then this huge company comes along and decides, I don't care what you want. We're going to splatter your name all over the place. And for what? Why? Why did that benefit Netflix to say their names I at agree. all? It didn't benefit Netflix, but it, it definitely injured and and I believe harmed the half siblings that you know, if they didn't want it done. Correct. And again, I mean, they have a process in place. They Again, why? What is shocking enough is the 94. Stop. I mean, you don't need to disclose that. And again, if they wanted to come forward and they wanted to speak, they hand them the microphone. Great. Absolutely. Sally Smith, speak. The other people who don't, because again, just like you said, it ruined their lives. People don't, some people don't want that. And we should always respect that. And again, why? What was the benefit? I, like you, agree. Netflix Flix does do some spot on stuff. This I cannot. This is too much. Right. Because again, what did it do to them? And that's not, we don't need to do that. That's not right. 
CBD Stat, they're amazing products. Love them. They support our podcast. Their CBD product is some of the absolute purest CBD out there. And some of my friends use it for headaches. I personally use it for foot pain. It helps with some people with their back pain. It's truly an amazing product. And they are so good to healthcare professionals. Such a good company. You know, I was able to use their product for the first time after you and I returned from Washington, D.C. for the Nurses March. They provided me with some samples. And I used it on a sore knee and then later on a sore wrist. And it helped so much. My daughter even uses it on her back for her scoliosis. And it really does help. That's amazing. And of course, their products are 100% THC free, which is great for travel nurses who have to take a drug test every three months. They only offer very strong CBD greater than 1,000 milligrams. If you're interested, you can go to cbdstat.care forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. That's cbdstat.care forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. Be sure and put the forward slash good nurse, bad nurse in there so they'll know that we sent you there. The complaint also alleges that the producers violated written agreements to not identify the donor children in the documentary unless their explicit consent was granted. No such permission was granted per the plaintiff's suit. And one one scene of the documentary displays photographs of the secret donor children with their names visible. Stop. Stop it. Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. That's ugly. No. And again, written agreement? Why? Now, if the Netflix documentary came out and someone picked it up on social media, someone tweeted, they got information, that's different, right? Just because Netflix exposed it doesn't mean that they need to exploit, because that's what they're doing, basically, is they're exploiting these two young ladies. Again, they violated their written agreements. And why? Netflix makes plenty of money. Stop it. That's ugly. Yeah, it's just, I don't see how it's necessary. I mean, you have this large company that has so much power. They reach millions of viewers, if not more, you know, who knows. And if viewers is all they care about, if that's all they care about, they're going to get that with this story. I mean, this is a very salacious story. It's one that you can grab people right at the beginning by just talking about what happened, you know, the 94, like you said, that number and talking about the doctor and to then say the names and show pictures of these people, it literally did not benefit Netflix at all. It's not going to gain them more viewers. Who cares? Nobody cares. I don't know these people's names. It doesn't matter what their names are. The only people it matters to are those people and their friends and family who now are looking at them going, oh, I didn't know this about you. And now they have to live with that. And it's just it's disgusting. Yeah, I can't sign up with that either. I agree. We don't need to do that. Well, the suit did list that both women have suffered severe harm to their due to their personal information being exposed. The complaint also cites that the documentary resulted in, quote, reputational injury, distress, embarrassment, and emotional trauma. The identity-revealing footage was also uploaded to social media accounts, therefore extending the exposure and harm to a broader audience. Both women are seeking financial compensation in the form of damages. So, shocking enough, what happened? I mean, this is not the only case of this type of thing happening, unfortunately. Yeah, that's what we're reading. I mean, there's like upwards of 50 physicians that have done this, and then we were looking And there's been no legislation up until 2019. There's been no legislation. And then 2019, they passed that fertility fraud is now a level six felony if you do conduct like this. And that's 
2019. 2019. And again, you know who yeah. we're talking about? We're talking about women. Fertility. We're talking about mm-hmm. women being right. violated. Let's just bottom line this. 2019. This is, and again, this has been happening, right? For, I don't care if there's one case, what we know of like 50 of them. And we, how many of these are not reported? How many of these have not? Because we all know this as well. There are 50 that have been exposed. Now, anyone who's taken stats, you know now, statistically speaking, there's now a percentage that's still not found this out. So this is so crazy. This physician didn't even serve time, right? They, he got fined and then probation. This is criminal conduct. This man should be in jail for the rest of his life. And I, I think that he retired when this all came to light. He's older man. So maybe the attorney general is just looking at it like, well, can't do it to anyone else because he's not working in that capacity anymore. You know, he's older, probably, you know, not... Well, I don't want to say he's not able to because I I don't think that really matters as much for men. But I don't know. It's hard for me to explain what the attorney general would be thinking or what anybody would be thinking that would think that this wasn't criminal because so obviously a violation. And yet they didn't apparently agree and didn't want to pursue it and almost acted as though this is not anything to be concerned about. I mean, you wanted a donor and you got a donor. What's the big deal? And yet it, the big deal is that he, you were told that there would be a maximum of three people with the same, you know, that that donor sperm would be used. Not having, who knows how many people they found 94. I mean, maybe there are more. You know there are more. And only that's a huge violation of the AMA, American Medical Association Code of Ethics. I mean, everything in, that he has done violates his oath to his profession, period, the end, to patients, to informed consent. That is not informed consent. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mention that my sperm will also be one of those four or three. I'm sorry. Did I mention that part? I mean, as the patient, if you know for sure you're one of the donors, that's my right to know that. But you don't get to stop it. So unethical on so many levels. Well, think about the psychological torture that a person would go through, a woman would go through. And I maybe I don't know that men can really understand that. But stop and think about psychologically and emotionally how you would feel if you had gone to this doctor that you trust, you go into a room you are you're exposed from the waist down. Most vulnerable a woman could be in a position a woman could be in. You know that there's this man's going to be coming in to insert something, you know. And so, then in retrospect, you look back on it and realize what was really going on is that he was in a room next door to where you were. He had to have been because he. I didn't even think about that. Fresh yep. sperm. Oh my gosh. Right. Wow. So some, mm-hmm. Yeah, because he was collecting his own and in real time and then taking it in place of the sperm that he would have been using otherwise. Yeah. So that's, you know, just stopping to think about that. Oh, how disgusting. He just right after doing that, he comes right into the room. She's exposed like that. And I realize that it's probably very difficult to put that into legal terms and make it some sort of an actual criminal violation that, that you could spell out. 
But common sense would tell you that woman is violated, that there's some psychological uh, damage that's going to happen to that woman. And I maybe also, you know, stop and think about this too. There are statute of limitations on most crimes. And I guess even any crime that, that the attorney general might be able to pull out of the air and say, okay, we can get you on this, it, the statute of limitations probably would have been passed. I didn't even think about that. That's spot on. Yep, that is so true. But civilly, for sure, because I do know that the most of the cases, because there are five total cases, I believe four of those are civil cases, and one was the criminal case where he is charged with a felony, but doesn't have to do time. He gets probation, or, and if I'm speaking out of the turn, right, this is just in my limited you know, research, and but I do believe convicted of six is obstruction of justice felonies, fertility fraud, but n- not enough. Lock him up. Are you kidding me? Throw away the key. Stop it. He, as a result of this, as, as a result of his own actions, he is natural, and this is all coming to light, he's going to naturally suffer some consequences. I'm sure it's damaged his marriage. I'm sure that he's been humiliated. And as someone who had been this so-called pillar of the community, elder in his church, and then he's going behind closed doors and doing this sort of thing. Not one time, not just once where he was tempted to do something and he did it and then looked back and regretted it. No. Over a period of years did this. It's clearly no remorse. And not only that, there's a percentage of the possibly didn't take maybe even that we might not even know about. I don't don't know. I'm very limited in my knowledge of fertility. So I'm speaking out of turn, but just there are women who don't, who maybe have part of the problem is it doesn't adhere, right? And so maybe they were inseminated, but didn't implant, right? So then you don't have a child. So again- Statistically speaking, that doesn't mean they weren't violated. Correct. Right. We don't know because again, it didn't adhere, so they didn't have a child. But you know that there's a percentage of those. This man was born in 1938, so you know he came out into practice medicine at a whole nother time, right? And just think about the 70s. This, I mean, fertility had to be cutting edge, seriously. So this man had to be regarded as a god. I mean, seriously, he's doing the 70s into the 80s. I mean, I don't even know what that, again, I'm not a fertility nurse. I'm a critical care nurse. But just imagine what that looked like for him. He was probably like, ah, we think you're great. I mean, you're changing. Can you even imagine how we regarded this guy? Seriously. He probably had this God complex and there it is. So then he behaves like in this manner. Well, you know, as shocking as it is, I would say that now, knowing what we know, there it would almost be impossible for someone to think that they could get away with something like this because they realize that, oh, you know, even if I could get away with doing this actual action, that the chances are I will be found out at some point down the road. So hopefully at least that will deter this from happening in the future. Right. Especially with what these doctors know about DNA they surely would not be that naive to think that in this day and age, because now, if you do that now, and just imagine, this, like this young lady, she was 10. 10 years from now, our technology is going to be way even better, right? So imagine as we go further on out, it's only going to be easier to identify, you know, what happened. So hopefully no doctor is that, you know, naive to believe that they're going to get away with it. So I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So you know I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. 
So one of them was following me around one day and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, y'all know the Echo Technology Company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course I let her use it. And she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes the stethoscope so amazing. Uh, you can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get 10% off your order. And that's Echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get 10% off your order. So we can get into the good nurse segment. And that is, we're going to be featuring, of course, as I said earlier at the beginning of the show, Maggie yourself. And you are, as I said at the beginning, a nurse advocate. Kind of explain to everybody what that means exactly. Sure. So I advocate for nurses. I do nurse case management. I work alongside attorneys and the nurse to most of the time they're under investigation by their board of nursing. I do some education as well to help nurses. So I advocate for them. Oftentimes it could be different things. They're reaching out to me. All of us have been hearing about the unsafe staffing, about being bullied. So they'll reach out to me to get some guidance. I've had attorneys reach out to me, reach out to me recently. A nurse was taking five patients and on a PCU. So he reached out to me. He's like, "Is should that be happening? And I said, no. So he sent the nurse my way so we could walk through some things. And even if I don't have the knowledge, then I pass them on to other nurses or attorneys who have this knowledge. So I call myself the nurse's advocate. I love that. So I think that a lot of, there are a lot of nurses. First of all, I think there are a lot of nurses that believe that the board of nursing is there to protect them. And they don't realize that it's actually, that is not true. I remember learning that in nursing school and being kind of shocked, like, wait, wait, what, what did you just say? But I still, there are lots of nurses who don't get it. The board of nursing is not there to protect you. It is there to protect the public from you. But that doesn't mean that they shouldn't take every case that is presented to them and, you know, have a sense of blind justice and give you the benefit of the doubt as a nurse. But oftentimes what I found out, what I found out just from stories that I've read and heard, but also from you, Maggie, is that a lot of times they go almost go into it with a bias against the nurse and for whoever it is that's bringing the complaint against them. And so that's why I came back out. I don't have extensive experience with the board. I was there for six months when I was hearing things like they're guilty, don't read their response. Or why are you even waiting for it, being discouraged from calling the nurse and or the respondent? Because once you're under investigation, you're now the respondent. I didn't see where we were giving extending nurses what I now know to be due process. 
extenuating circumstances, taking into consideration staffing or acuity of the patient or taking the lens out. And different from civil world and criminal world, like with a civil case, you cannot even file a civil case unless you have an expert like a nurse or physician who looks at it and says, this is merit. Then you're allowed to petition the court or whatever the word is to say, hey, we want to file this suit. That doesn't happen in the administrative world. That absolute doesn't happen. So even when a complaint comes, you should be able to have an expert to look at it, to say, who does that discipline? Who, if it's a critical care case, it should be a critical care. If it's not a critical care investigator, that they have an expert that they can go to say, hey, this patient came in with chest pain. They did not get an EKG within five minutes. What do I need? What should I subpoena? Or what should be the course? And that's a fact. That happened at the board. This investigator came to me. She had only done psych nursing. Two years of nursing, had only done psych nursing. She came to me. It was a chest pain case. A nurse had been reported, an older nurse. And when I asked, I said, well, let me see the EKG. Well, she didn't even have the EKG yet. How is that possible? It's a chest pain case. But I know I came from the ER. An EKG has to be done within five minutes, no less than 10 minutes. That's a standard in the emergency room. And then you're putting it in front of the doctor like, sign it. I need you to look at it. So then when she did get the EKG, I saw that the patient was in third degree heart block. The cath lab team didn't respond quick enough or was delayed again, worked in the cath lab, just came from there. Right. And so they needed to have a temporary pacemaker put in. They became unstable. They were trying to blame her. And I don't remember all the details saying that she did not alert the cath lab or the doctor, which was clear on the EKG because he had signed it within five minutes. But So why was she under investigation? Right. So th- these are the things that as I became very frustrated with. I didn't understand the process. I started questioning it. I didn't feel like it was fair. I didn't feel like things like mitigating circumstances were even considered. When I was trained as an investigator and I went to national training, not once was it like, number one, do you think this is retaliation? That was never a question for an investigator, right? There was no like checklist, right? Even when I came back to my unit, which was the board of nursing, right? Essentially, I wasn't trained then again, specific to my board, because I went to training with other people, whether it was a pharmacist, someone who's going to work for the board of pharmacy or the board of medicine or the board of occupational therapy, because they all have investigators. When we went to our respective, you know, boards, I wasn't then trained to say, hey, number one, you know, do you think this was retaliation? If it came to my desk, someone else already decided, was supposed to have decided this and that I was going to investigate it. So I only stayed for about six months. I just wasn't comfortable with that process. And I started coming back out. I started doing my own research. I then found out that there's no one that oversees boards. There's no one. And in tech, I do reside in Texas. That is a fact. And just think about this. If you do fall under the governor, then your allegations come from the attorney general, so the AG. So then the AG reaches out to you, sends you your allegations, you sing to a bird to the AG. You don't agree with what they're saying. You don't agree. I'm being retaliated against. Say you're being retaliated against, which is real. You tell the AG everything. Then you want to move on. You don't agree with your allegations. You want to move on to an informal conference. You know who the AG represents, right? The Board of Nursing. Oh, wow. So then you want to go to a mediation. So you go to an informal conference. So the informal conference, it's the executive director, it's the investigator, board attorney, 
There might be some other consultants in the room, you and your lawyer. And so at that time as well, they can add on more allegations. And we've seen that happen. The One of the last times the they did that, the nurse wanted to see the medical record and they denied her to see even the medical record. They added on a new allegation that she had not seen before. So at the informal conference, they added on an allegation. She wanted to see the medical record and they said no. So of course she wouldn't sign her orders. So then think about you want to go to a mediation where there's a judge. And I'm speaking, I know specifically for Texas, but all states have a process in place where the nurse can go through. Normally it's informal conference, mediation, a trial. For a trial, they call it SOA, which is the State Office of Administrative Hearing. So you want to go to a mediation and there's a judge. So the AG, right, is now representing the Board of Nursing, right? And so the judge never has the final say. So in administrative law, you go to a mediation and now just imagine that you don't have liability insurance or medical malpractice insurance and this is costing you I don't know, they cost what, a hundred or three hundred to a thousand dollars an hour. So do that math, because that's what an attorney costs, right? So now you go to a mediation. I mean, that's how much money they worked up your case. Then again, the judge never has the final say. So if they mediation you don't agree and you want to go to a trial, they dock you for SOA. Again, now you're paying for this the lawyer, right? Which could be hundred, two hundred thousand dollars at this point. And now you're two to three years into this process. And now you better pray that they have not formally charged you because you're not working if you've been formally charged. And it depends on what your conduct is if you, they formally charge you. So you get all the way to SOA to a trial for nurses, and then the judge never has the final say. The border nursing always has the final say. So once I did some of this research, I just I had a huge problem with this. It's not constitutional. That's not due process. And I'm still a baby on the journey. I'm still learning. I am not the end-all to be-all. I have grave concerns about my own border nursing. I've helped nurses across the nation, and I've found a lot of consistencies. And I now understand that is the way that administrative law is written for. And it doesn't really matter what board you're talking about, pharmacy, lawyer, teacher, it's all falls under administrative law. And it's written so because our representatives, our legislators don't understand nursing, pharmacy, medicine. So they say, figure your stuff out, which basically creates a tribunal, right? So they get to hold themselves accountable. They investigate themselves. Like we can't have that. At least we need a third-party entity, an ombudsman. And I helped write a bill for an ombudsman in Texas, which I want passed. So that's just my journey. That's why I became a nurse advocate, because I do feel very passionate in it. And nurses are going to mess up. We're not perfect. Medication errors are real. But if you're standing in front of the board, my all I want is for a nurse to have due process. That's all I want. No one's perfect, right? We all get due process, and that's all I want for a nurse. So as a nurse advocate, what you would do then is sort of be like a mediator between the nurse who has been accused of something, whether it be board of nursing or maybe, who knows, maybe criminal charges or civil charges or something. And so you kind of help mediate between that person and then maybe the attorney because you have been around it. You're not an attorney and you can't give legal advice, but you've been around it enough and have done enough research and worked in it long enough 
that you obviously you know the nursing part of it, but you also know the legal part. So you know how to talk to the attorneys to try to get them to focus on the right things and represent their client in the best possible way. So I, I think that's amazing. And it's, I don't know that Maybe if people even realize that they need that, if I think we we're all so naive, you know? And so the prime example is like I was working with a nurse and her attorney. The attorney's not a nurse. So another reason why you need me, right? Because again, I can help walk you. So the attorney kept telling the nurse that she had gotten her, her allegations. So when you're under investigation for, by a board, you don't have to tell anyone unless you're filling an application that says, are you currently being investigated by a board of nursing? You don't have to disclose that. Until you've been sanctioned or charged, you never have to disclose that. Her attorney was insistent that she, re and I said, no. So we went to the Board of Nursing, so I helped do some research. And I found where it says, because I already knew it, where it says under the Board of Nursing that they don't have to. She wasn't happy with that response. So then I just wrote the language so that she could send it to the investigator. Because once you have a lawyer, you never get to talk to the investigator for the Board of Nursing. You always have to work through your lawyer, which again, is 300 to $1,000 an hour. The other reason why you want to call me as well, because again, I can help guide you through some things. So I gave them the language that they could ask the investigator, which they did. And the investigator came back and said, you absolutely do not have to disclose that you're under investigation. Because again, they could close it. They could investigate you and find nothing. And now you lost your job, right? Because again, do you think that your job is going to hold on to you? Probably not. So you don't have to disclose. So I work alongside the nurse and the attorney. The nurse will sometimes call me. You know, I'll have them do some things. Like you're going to create a timeline. Like this is your life, right? And the attorney doesn't have a lot of time to spend with you. No, their legal assistant, their paralegal is working this up. But I help you. We're going to create a table. We're going to go over everything. Like this is your allegation. We're going to dissect it. Okay, number one says you did this conduct on this day. We break up the conduct. This was the medication that you gave and there was no order. Okay, so then you're, you need to have your full and complete file. Let's make sure that let's get the medical record. You know. And then she's at working with the attorney. I send nurses to the National Council for State Board of Nursing. I give them the links. Watch the videos. I'm under investigation. That's why they're there. Know what your rights are. So I do, or they call me. It's one o'clock in the morning. It's, they're upset. They're worried. They're anxious. I create a support group because none of these nurses should feel shameful. So I truly do everything that I can to try and support the nurse. And a lot of times it's just education because when you, it's like getting a diagnosis of cancer or, you know what I mean? You hear one sentence and you have no, the lawyer just told you 12 things and you're like, stop. I, so then I talk to you. We go through, again, I tell you about, okay, the first step is going to be your allegations, they sent you those. You have 30 days to respond. You're gonna get your complete file. You're gonna do this and then you're gonna respond. Then you have an option and I go to the Board of Nursing, tell me your state. And then we look at it, we go through the process. I help dumb it down, right? Then they're gonna come back and ask 12 other things. And that's perfectly acceptable. And then we just go through the process. Okay, let's just talk about it. Let's talk about what's options in your state. If you didn't do any of this, then you know, you want to go to an informal conference. If you did this conduct, then you just got to own it, right? And we talk about those things. So I try to just be a support system for the nurse. Are you able to help nurses in other states other than Texas where you actually reside? Yeah, I've helped nurses across the nation. I've been doing this for about a decade. 
There was a Vermont nurse that reached out. And at the time, it was my business partner, Darlene Nelson, and I hoped this nurse was doing some kind of new technology. Laser, don't have any idea what he was doing. Don't really care. The board of nursing, because his competitor reached out and tried to open up a complaint against him, saying that he was basically practicing out his scope, which he was not, but his competitor didn't want him competing with him. So then we would just helped him, you know, him and his lawyer draft a letter saying stop. They had to change, take back the allegations and you can't do that. No. So across any state could just think about it. The, in the next 10 years, we're all going to have the, a compact license. There's going to be no such thing as, so truly when I look at nurse practice acts from other states, they're pretty much the same. Now, are they going to be called different occupational codes? Sure. Mine, you know, like I know the disciplinary ones under Texas fall under 217, like 11 or whatever. And every state will be different, but it is absolutely occupational law that every state falls on, under. And sometimes I learn like with Mich- Michigan, they group it under all the other disciplines. Like, I didn't know that. But again, they still have laws that dictate nursing scope of practice. And so they're pretty much essentially all the same. And they stay pretty broad. They're not giving, they'll have some position statements. Like one example that I use is for conscious sedation. One of the only position statements that the boards have, but they just have a minimum for requirements. They do not add on entitled CO2. But just think about that. The American Academy of Anesthesia does, and then a hospital policy is driven that says that because now that's science-based, right? That's driven by science. But they have taken a a minimum position statement on that. But for the most part, the NPAs are going to be the same. What unprofessional conduct is, now the sanctions may be a little bit different. But just think about your education. It, it all comes from the same, which drives the border nursing. So yes, across the nation, I've helped nurses in pretty much every state now. Say, for example, I lived in Colorado and I was under investigation all of a sudden. Something just, I had no idea. Some, I was blindsided by this complaint and I'm in complete shock. I don't know what to do, but I remember, oh, I remember there's this nurse advocate in Austin, Texas. I'm going to go find her. But so if they're thinking, but, oh, she lives in Texas, will you then look at Colorado specifically? Will you kind of just like delve into that and find out more? Okay. Yeah. Normally when they reach out to me, and right, we go over things. I don't give legal advice. I'm not your attorney. I'm an advocate. We go over all that stuff like you you know, instructed. I always tell them you need to get a lawyer. Sometimes when they reach out to me, they're like, well, I have to respond in five days. I'm like, five days? Wait, what? So then I work alongside them independently while we're trying to get an attorney because I do want them. It's like finding a physician. You need to find someone who aligns with you. So you shouldn't just agree on the first attorney that you find, but I'm going to help you draft your general denial letter and get your full complete file, which is normally what you and your attorney would do. But if you have five days, then you're gonna I'm gonna help you draft that while you work on getting an attorney. When you get the attorney, you already have your file, you're gonna send that to the attorney. The attorney will have already reached out to the board of nursing to let them know that they now represented you. Your attorney will now get all the communication from the board. You will no longer do that. And then I just do research, we look at the allegation, and then I pull up the Nurse Practice Act in your state. But a lot of time it's gonna be conduct related. Like the last one was HIPAA. Unfortunately, that's pretty cut and dry. 
I mean, truly, I don't care what state you're in, but even if it's a medication error, like that conduct is, depending on what it is, like it's unprofessional conduct. You don't, most boards say that you're supposed to know medications that you administer. Those are the ones that they'll try to use against you. And those are pretty broad. So it doesn't really matter what state you're in. I'll just go look up your allegations. And then most boards use the decision-making tree so it'll ask like the question, like text, it'll link you to it. It's like, number one, you came in and they wanted you to take 10 patients. You should have only had six, you know, what did you do? Number two, you know, take, did you file safe Harbor or did you just take the assignment? It just kind of walks you down. So most board of nursing has a decision-making tree that you should be utilizing which for most of us know is kind of common sense because once you become a nurse, there's a knowledge base that you now understand, right? Like the doctor asked me to give 5,000 milligrams of Dilaudid. What's number two? You know what I mean? You're going down the decision-making tree. You're saying no, giving some other options, but most boards have a process in place. They require a nurse to do a comprehensive an RN to do a comprehensive assessment. So putting that stuff is pretty standard, honestly. And I've touched most of boards of nursing, looked up them in some form that I'm pretty comfortable saying they're all the same. And I think 33 or 36 states now are compact. So truly, again, they all have the same kind of views. And only that, a lot of that's driven again by codes of ethics, what we learn and what we know. So it's not necessarily specific to you gave this drug too fast. The border nursing is never going to, that's not like a, a, a 21711. It will be tied to no, you didn't understand. Is your responsibility as a nurse to know how a drug is going to affect the patient? And I don't know the specific one. But so do you see how that could just cover all boards? Because they're keeping it so broad to our discipline. Do you recommend that people have liability insurance? Absolutely. Like individually? Because a lot of nurses will say, well, no, am I? And the hospitals will even tell you, well, we have you covered. You don't need individual liability insurance. I highly suggest this. And I get asked this all the time. And I've seen this on, I do civil, I've testified civilly for medical malpractice and then administratively. So just think about civilly. If the physician, the hospital, and you are all named in the same suit, you know the physician has their own lawyer, right? for obvious reasons. And so now it's coming down to you and the hospital. Who do you think the hospital is going to protect? That's a conflict of interest. So, and now it crosses over. So now that case civilly, so the hospital was representing you there now for that civil case. And this is a fact. Now you've been found negligent in that and say, this is a real case. The patient developed a pressure ulcer, so that civil case got reported to the board on nursing. Who then is going to pay for your administrative lawyer if you don't have like the your organization does not the organization if you get reported to the board of nursing they absolutely will not pay for you to have an administrative lawyer if you have liability insurance then you can reach out to them and they have a list of li through whatever it's like car insurance the same thing home insurance these are the list of adjusters that you can use same thing these are the lawyers that take this insurance and will cover you so then you reach out to one of them and they will be your administrative lawyer wow that's really good to know it kind of makes me think of of when you go to buy a house, you can, a lot of times, you know, if you go to buy a house, there is a, a real estate agent that is selling that house and they represent the seller. And you as a buyer could go and use that real estate agent to represent 
you and the seller, uh, you know, to, or to kind of handle all the paperwork and do everything. And you just kind of go through the process, you know, and let them use their expertise to guide you through the process. But when it comes right down to it, if there's any overlapping interests, if there's any anywhere where, you know, the interest lies, it, it, there's some conflict between the seller and the buyer, that agent represents the seller. And so they are not going to disclose anything to you that they don't have to that would benefit you and hurt the seller. So it would be better if you can bring your own real estate agent to represent you as a buyer when you're buying a house. Same thing, uh, I would imagine that what you just explained, where if you working for the hospital and you're doing your job and they have liability insurance or malpractice insurance or whatever covering them and then they get sued they their yeah their attorneys will will be there to help you through the process but if at any point it is going to benefit the hospital to throw you under the bus there you go you will go right well, on under the that, bus what if you get terminated then who's representing you if they if your conduct if you're and again I'm not saying that you're but even again if it's a medication error which is real right things happen right so something happens and now your conduct they find and they can terminate you especially in a state where you're at well employed they decide to terminate you so now you're involved in a civil and administrative case who's representing you and you don't have your own insurance it's still not the hospital because you don't work for them anymore. And again, so now they're not even vested in you. So why would they represent you again? No, you're a liability to them. No, we're throwing Sally Sue under the bus. We really don't care. I know people do have this mixed feeling about this. And Lori Brown speaks about this. She's a huge advocate for nurses should have insurance. Because again, most RNs do not have $100,000 sitting in the bank that you could retain a lawyer and just be real clear and not just pray that it's only law, right? So administrative, criminal, and civil, right? Because you got three branches that could cross over into. This could get real expensive and now you're not working. So tell me how you're paying for this. It's so, what it does to nurses, it breaks my heart. Listening to nurse cry. And again, do nurses do things? Of course they do. No one's perfect. We don't shame people. We don't do these things to nurses. Everyone's fallible. We are stressed. We have a very hard job. We honestly do. So I just think that we just need to be kinder to one another and to nurses. Well, I do too. And I, you know, I just think how many professions are there out there where someone has to worry about being sued just for doing their job. I mean, I know that there are a lot out there, but there are also a lot of professions that we could choose to do that we would not have this added pressure. It already has a lot of pressure. You know, we're taking care of people, human beings, you know, we're taking care of husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and children and sisters and friends. We're taking care of yeah, we're taking care of all these people. The acuity of patients is only getting higher. Yeah, and it's a lot of pressure on us, you know, to do everything right, to try to do everything we can for to take care of people and help to, them to get better. And then in the process of doing that, you know, we make a mistake and then this is what we're, you know, we're facing just, and here we are out here all on our own, you know, by ourselves, just kind of trying to navigate the system. The shame that nurses carry sometimes is far worse than any civil criminal or it breaks my heart. I just, I mean, and not only that, the incidents of suicide sometimes when nurses get reported and it's just, I don't want that for any nurse. I will always 
stand next to any nurse. That's why I was not initially called to nursing. I am called to nurses for sure. I know that for certain. That's is that's where I feel like I'm at. Thank you for all that you do for the nursing profession and for nurses. And remind everybody or tell everybody where they can find you if they need your services or they just want to follow you on social media or whatever. Sure. I don't get real crazy. It's advocate number four, or you can spell it out, nurses, advocatesfornurses.com, advocatesfornurses at Gmail, all my handles at advocatesfornurses. TikTok, Instagram, Twitter. I'm not trying to get real crazy. So if you search advocates for nurses, probably going to come up with me. Oh, that's awesome. And you are you just recently, I think, got on TikTok and it didn't take you long for you to start gaining a following. Yeah, for sure. It's I was in the civil world and I've tapped out of that because when you testify, you have to be careful. So it took me a minute to get here, but yes, I'm glad to see that nurses are receptive to some of the things that I'm saying. Cause again, I just want nurses to, it's our livelihood and we need to stand up, say no and protect our livelihood. What we do is pretty amazing. So Love my TikTokers. I think it's awesome. I'm learning a lot. <laughs> yeah, same here. You guys know you can find me, uh, Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, wherever. You can look up Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. You can Google me or we have goodnursebadnurse.com. It's Good Nurse, Bad Nurse on social media. And you can email me at tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. I love hearing from you guys. Don't forget to get your tickets virtual and in yes. person. If you're in Austin, Texas, you can Come. go in person. Maggie's going to be, be there. there. I'm so excited. <laughs> yes. I can't wait. And only that, even yeah. if you're full-time at a job and you're crazy happy, or if you're part-time, I'm all about a side gig. There's so many things that nurses can do. And not only that, when you come back to the bedside, you're just, you, it's just like you're filling up your soul a little bit because you're doing other stuff on the side. And it is. And nurses are amazing. There's so many things that we have the capability of doing. So yes, come on down to Austin, Texas. Yeah. Nurse Creator Con. And you can get tickets if you can't be there in person. You can, we are going to live stream it. We're going to record it and have it available for you to watch back for up to a year after. But go to nursecreatorcon.com. And you can read all about all of the fun shenanigans that we have planned for you, the mentoring sessions, the taco bar, the cash bar, all of it. It's going to be so much fun. I can't wait. I can't can't wait. wait. And of course, I also want to remind you guys that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse.